Hello, everyone. My name is Shilasa Bruce Christensen. You are listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, producer-director Ben Rock, how are you today? I'm doing fine, proprietor of Hot Rod Cameras and technologist Ilya Friedman. Hey, uh, that got our introductions of who we are out of the way, which we really hadn't been explaining to many people. But, uh, you know, there was a revelation recently that our most downloaded episode ever was episode one. So uh, I guess that probably most people had heard that. But Man. I think there's a lot of people who did not go back to episode one. And I think it's fallen off of now of the... the really? Yeah. Yeah. Apple... I was. Yeah. I mean, this this is not what we're here to talk about, but I was so excited to do episode one because Jason Wingrove, who was our very first interview, was the co-host of a podcast called Red Center and later changed its name to The RC. And uh, I had been listening to his voice in my head for years, years at that point. Years, yeah. You arranged the interview when we were at NAB. It was just super exciting to talk to Wingrove and he's a really cool guy and he uh, comes from being a DP and had become a director and I, I would also like to say I don't believe we've ever published his war story which I edited back in the day but we I don't know that we've ever published it might need yeah. to revisit the edit you know the reason we haven't actually is because we went to go put the last episode together and we couldn't find it and I think that you must have it somewhere so we'll have to get it from you I will look because especially back then I didn't just put everything in the Dropbox where we all keep it, but I also had it all backed up on an external drive, which I have right here. So I will look for it. Okay, cool. Ilya, who is on the show today? Uh, Charlotta Bruce Christensen is coming back for a uh, another go around. Yeah, we're, we're uh, hitting a point where, honestly, we've interviewed all the DPs, so we're going back and re-interviewing them now. Yeah, every every all DP has now been interviewed. No. <laughs> They've not, all been no. interviewed. You're welcome, world. We've we've talked to everybody. No, uh, uh, Shalada is amazing and has, uh, uh, to this day, my favorite war story that we've ever gotten. No offense to everyone else with great war stories, but her war story about uh, shooting the Thomas Vinterberg movie while eight months pregnant, all handheld, uh, pretty much takes the cake. It is, uh, it is one to be beheld. And I always, uh, whenever we're talking to people about what is a war story, I always tell uh, her story. Whenever I'm telling someone about the podcast, I will tell that story because people are like, I don't know nothing about cinematography and I don't want to hear about F-stops and lenses. It's like, okay, here's a crazy fucking story for you. <laughs> yeah. Here's someone who was strapped 60 pounds of camera equipment to their body and uh, was eight months pregnant and shot a movie. Yeah. How about that? Brilliant. <laughs> and shot a, shot a, a, a movie for Thomas Vinterberg, you know, yeah. like, you know, super acclaimed international filmmaker. And the reason that we're having her back is that she did something that I uh, find fascinating, which is she directed and DP'd not just a movie, a three hour TV show for Hulu that is a remake of, uh, it's not actually a remake, it's a reinterpretation of the source material of Black Narcissus, which is a movie that won Best Cinematography at the Oscars, I believe, in 46 or 47. And it's not just three hours. It's a three-hour period piece that takes place in the Himalayas. Lots of visual effects, but, you know, it's very character-driven story. And uh, anyway, I'll let Shalata tell her whole side of it. But suffice it to say, a uh, very ambitious first directing project for Shalata. And uh, she is 1,000% up to the task. 
Yeah. And, you know, I was really looking forward to this interview, too, since uh, we're both fans. But uh, of course, she had just it had I don't think it come out yet. It had not yet come out last time she was on the show. But she, of course, shot A Quiet Place, which was uh, you know. I think A Quiet Place came out like within a month of when we interviewed her because uh, she was still fresh in my mind when I saw her name come up. And I'm like, God damn it. I would have loved to have talked to her about this. So yeah, now we have. And then, of course, between A Quiet Place and Black Narcissist, she also shot The Banker, which we talk about a bit in the interview. But uh, The Banker, just to give everyone a backstory, I think that this should actually be our uh, close focus this week. It's very interesting. It was the supposed to be the first theatrical sort of like Oscar contender for Apple. And hours before its AFI premiere, a Me Too sexual allegation charges came to light against who was someone who was credited as the producer, but really was uh, the son of one of the two subjects in the movie, uh, one of the two main characters, and is represented in the movie as a young child, but is pretty much not in the movie at all. And everybody took a huge step back. The movie got pulled from its premiere and was essentially shelved and has just now come out finally on Apple TV. And there's this really interesting deadline article which tells the whole story. And we're not here to pass judgments or cast dispersions on, on anyone who uh, was involved in this. And the reasons are all, all you know, laid and out. Certainly not to say that any allegations are, are false or, or negate anything, you know, any experience that anybody had. Like, I, that is not no, my not, intention. No, not at, at all. all. But um, the article does a really good job, I think, of diving in deep and kind of giving you all the all the sides and the information so that you can make up your own mind about this. But what's really interesting is that the allegations against the son of one of the two main characters, uh, it has almost nothing to do really overall with the movie. This is all stuff that, that took place, uh, I guess, you know, way, way, way. Uh, after the fact, and it's not part of the story, but because he and, had some sort of control over the, the of the his father's estate, that he ended up with some sort of producer credit. Although he was not part of the narrative, he did not actually create the narrative. The narrative was uh, was yeah, created did, entirely. Raise the money. He didn't direct the movie. No, he didn't. He didn't write the movie. He's not in the movie. And I I feel like this is it opens up a reckoning that a lot of us ha- have to have on some level. Like for instance, and this is like in the extremist version of it, but. How many uh, awesome indie movies that were released by Miramax or the Weinstein Company did did we love? Did you know one Best Picture? You know, did find a huge audience. I mean, th- there's too many to count, and you kind of go, okay, well, Harvey Weinstein was an evil son of a bitch and is hopefully going to rot in jail, and um, materially involved in most of those movies in a very very you know fundamental super way. hands on, yeah. But does that negate them in the same way that, for instance, I don't think I could really watch the Cosby show or listen to a Bill Cosby comedy album because that's like the direct work of the malefactor himself in that case. But if you're watching Pulp Fiction, uh, it was a movie that was enabled to exist or, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many, uh, Shakespeare in love, there's a bazillion of them, you know, like, do you say, okay, well, you know, it was brought into this world through an evil person and I'm never going to watch it again. And in the case of the banker, it was someone who was sort of a, uh, not a silent partner, but like someone who had to sign off on getting the thing made and got a producing credit. And that does, I mean, some producers work their asses off day in, day out on a film. Some producers go like hey i can introduce you to brad pitt and because of that the movie gets made and they get a producing credit and they didn't really do very much more than make a phone call and in the case of this guy too he offered to take his name off the film 
and, and, and he does and he does take it off and his accuser is uh his half sister named mm-hmm. uh, cynthia garrett and she's a lawyer and a tv personality and a member of the 700 club she's done she's done a bunch of stuff out out there but um really it's, it's interesting and it brings up a lot of sort of the mechanical portion of like what exactly it means to make a movie and how everything's involved because you know apple being you know the world's first trillion dollar company they don't want to have any controversy that's going to cause a huge swath of potentially their their broad consumer market from stopping to buy their phones or buy their products or whatever it is. Yeah. And if it turns out that they dropped millions of dollars on a movie, they purchased a, a movie that they they were they're going to release and you know hope for Oscar buzz. If it has controversy, whoop, they, you know there it goes, it disappears. And I'm really really glad it came back because it's a great movie and it's a great story. And I think if you read the deadline article, it actually uh, it just gives you more of sort of the truth of the whole thing, because really, uh, you know, the very talented writer director, he spent it sounds like ages crafting the story. And, you know, there are characters who are left out because they don't fit sort of like the whole thing and the whole whole narrative. And it it feels very reasoned. And uh, I think that the movie is great and I hope that people watch it. And it's a story that that deserves to be told. And it really does uh, shine a light on something that younger generations are probably not too familiar with, which is the Jim Crow South. So, which is, yeah, I, I do think it's interesting too. And frustrating in a sense, because this person who, again, was not like materially in, involved with the production of the movie or the creative direction of it. Although again, I assume he had to sign off on how his family was portrayed in it or whatever that, that ends up therefore sandbagging the work of the writer, the director, you know, in this case, the DP, all the actors, Sam Jackson and Anthony Mackie and all, all these amazing people who worked on the film. And then like right down the line, production designers, art directors, props, people, whatever. These people work their asses off on it. And again, uh, to, to use another extreme example, uh, Louis C.K.'s movie, I Love You, Daddy. Like mm. he wrote it. He directed it. It had, uh, from what I gather, having never seen it, it had some real problems in the sexual politics of it to begin with. And then, of course, you know, Louis C.K. had his scandal come down right as the movie was about to be released. Distributor dropped it, blah, blah, blah. You know, another example that was only from four years ago. So it's like uh, kind of predating the Me Too movement a little bit, although I'd say maybe it was one of the things that started it was Nate Parker. Mm, who yeah, directed, yeah. directed Birth, Birth of a of Nation, Nation, which yeah. is which, by the way, is an excellent film. But what Nate Parker is accused of is pretty severe. Yeah. And then he he I, I sort of feel like post Me Too, he just it just would have destroyed his movie. But he was given multiple opportunities, including by Oprah, to kind of get ahead of it and apologize and i think that the community might have let it go in 2016 again i don't think that it would be let go today Mm -hmm. and it ended up kind of killing not just that movie but his directing career but but then you know you also think about like all the other actors who worked on that movie all you know the cinematographer like all the people who worked on it and how their work ends up going unappreciated and i feel like in the case of nate parker especially if he is guilty of what it is widely believed he's guilty of i understand but in the case of this, again, no one was leveling any of those charges at the director, the writer, you know. No, and, and the director, George Nolfi, which I, th- I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I hope I, I got it right. He's got a, a, an incredible career as a, as a writer, and uh, he's only got a, a few directing credits, but, uh, but you know, really, really strong work. I mean, he's uh, he wrote Ocean's 12 and The Bourne Ultimatum and The Adjustment Bureau, of course, and The Banker. He, he was a writer of the screenplay of The Banker, and 
did a, a fantastic job directing it. So I, I really hope that it does get seen. It does get uh, some attention. And, um, I, you know, I understand I understand Apple's position and everybody else's position. But I, I think it's worth uh, I think it's definitely worth a look. I think the, the subject matter is strong and it's a story that deserves to be told. Uh, and uh, Shalata does talk about it and uh, she goes into some detail about it. So let's go ahead and get into the interview with Shalata Bruce Christensen. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we are super excited to have uh, our returning champion, Shalata Bruce Christensen, coming back to the show. Thank you so much for coming back. You've had some uh, huge uh, moves in your career since you were last with us. Although I feel like you gave us my personal favorite war story of probably anyone who we've ever had on the show, which was about uh, shooting that movie for Thomas Vinterberg while eight months pregnant. It's it's the war story that when we're telling people what a war story is, we tell them your story. That's 100% true. <laughs> yeah, we really do. It's such a great story. First and foremost, because you have a new series on Hulu called Black Narcissus, which is a pretty amazing, visual, beautiful show. And you both directed it and DP'd it. And something that we've talked over the years about getting people who direct and DP together, because to me, it's mm. it's, such, it's such a mind bender to to do that job. And I want to understand how you approach it. And and I was kind of looking at your, at your filmography and you had worked with a lot of first time directors. And even though you had directed something, you know, way back in like 2004, this is like your first big directing gig. So now you're a first time, uh, you're DPing for yourself as first time director. Can you tell me a little bit about, well, firstly, just tell me about, give me the pitch for Black Narcissus and tell me what brought you to the material. Well, uh, I'll start with what brought me to the material because uh, we all know it's a, it's an old classic that was done by um, Paul Pressburger, shot by Jack mm. Cardiff back in 1947. One best cinematography back then too, so. It, yeah, in, indeed. And uh, it is it is a stunning movie. It is, I mean, it is one of the most beautiful movies I've seen. And I, I'm a big fan of, of, of the story and everything else. So it's one of those things that you obviously would never touch, <laughs> just as a rule. Um, so I think it was sent to me by two producers, English producers, Andrew McDonnell and uh, Elon Reich. And um, I've worked with them before on a film called Far From The Manning Crowd. Mm. And we had a really wonderful relationship on that one. And since then, we sort of kept in touch and said, well, you know, one day we're going to do something else. And then all of a sudden an email popped up where they were like, oh, would you read the script for directing? And this whole directing thing has been in the talks for for a bit, which I think probably every DP or, or many DP has that sort of conversation with agents and colleagues because it is, you, you do collaborate so closely with directors. But I also want to say I, I didn't ever see it as a sort of a jump, but some, you know, a, a challenge in life that sort of has grown with the past sort of three, four or five movies mm -hmm. into something that, you know, maybe potentially it would be fun to try. Um, so this one came up and immediately my first reaction was like, no way, <laughs> no way. <laughs> However, I read the first, there was three scripts, uh, three episodes, and I read the first one and it was really quite catching. Um, still felt like, no, it's not, it's not right uh, for me to do this one. Uh, I spoke to the producers and they said, just, just read, the, had I ever read the novel, which I hadn't. I'd watched the movies many times in film history back at the film school and on my own. So I read the novel and, and I have to say, it is one of, it is an extraordinary, beautifully written novel by uh, Ruma Godden. Mm -hmm. So I fell in love with the story. And there is obviously, like many films, there is much more in the book than, the, than 
you know, you can ever do in a movie. So I think what sort of suddenly got to my mind is like, this is interesting, not remaking Black Narcissus. That isn't interesting and that it doesn't need remaking. So it wasn't that. It was reinterpreting that book 70 years later with a 2020 mindset. So I fell in love with the idea of just rethinking that story or reinterpreting it, the same book. So I think that's sort of, that's what brought me into the idea of actually taking such a crazy project on board. Um, it is a story of female desire. Our main character, Clodagh, and in fact, all the five nuns are escaping something, some part of themselves. So that's sort of the heart of the story. And I think what sort of made it really interesting for me is, you know, I think a lot of not just women, but young people, you know, and a lot of women, young women, you know, there's a lot of us that are escaping who you are, you know, with Instagram and Facebook and however. It's a little bit the reverse image because today people project who they want to be, you know, on Facebook or Instagram, all these images of who you, who you want people to to think you are, but really you might be somebody else. And this is you know, the reverse story. You know, she's running away, escaping who she really is. And that escape was of her desires and physical desires were, you know, necessary for her to be accepted in the world that she was born into. Now, was it baked into the cake from the beginning that you were going to direct it and DP it? Or was there any discussion about bringing somebody else on to DP while you direct it? Yeah, that was definitely the very first conversation and the, the first wish was to find that person to collaborate with. So mm. I did have a short list of names. Some of them, I think the producers laughed a little bit and said, this is, <laughs> you know, this is a TV show and we can't afford these people. But obviously I got great colleagues that I would love to work with. And then, and then it, I sort of turned around and was like, well, it might be interesting that I, you know, maybe I, I want to go out there and find some up and coming you know, young DP, female, maybe female DP or male DP and collaborate with. Um, so I sort of fell in love with that idea. But I think the more we discussed it and the more I got to know, the more I sort of learned about the project and what this would take. I think I also understood that I'm a DP. I haven't directed before. So hanging on to the confidence of knowing how I interpret stories and scenes and lighting and framing and everything, you know, it's sort of keeping that guitar in my hands while singing. I think that was, <laughs> that was sort of like, I'm, I wasn't sure. The more I sort of thought about it, I wasn't sure I could actually sing very well without that guitar. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't about other, that there wasn't somebody who was a great match. I think it was, it was a personal need to hang on to it. What did you do to prepare to direct since, I, I mean, again, you, you have directed some stuff before, but this is a humongous undertaking. Did you study with anyone? Did you like, what were the books that you were reading? What were the things that were kind of getting you ready for the challenge of directing separately from shooting? I think I've been very, very lucky to have been on a, on a journey as a DP who has introduced me to amazing filmmakers Mm -hmm. You know, Thomas Vanderberg, first and foremost, I started out with him and I made three films with him and we had a really, really close relationship. And he brought me into close conversations about uh, interpreting stories. And so, you know, that sort of kicked it off. But then I've been working with first time directors or where you sort of you, you get close because it requires that you are in yeah. there and you give everything you have to a, to a new director. But also working with Denzel Washington on Fences, where, you know, he performed 
performed. He was fond of the lens and also directed it. Um, spending five months with Denzel obviously also gave me a very good, and the way he spoke to me was all through performing. So I think I got really close to his character and to understanding the way he he see things and what he wanted from me and what and and also I was observing a lot of things through a director's mind because I was you know part of supporting that whole thing. However, Denzel was incredibly it was impressive how he could cope with both. He never stepped down from the directing side of things. I think watching him doing the two things while also getting close to him as an as an actor was very inspiring and and educational. Again, with the Quiet Place, you know, John Krasinski, he had done a movie before, but he hadn't done as many movies as themselves. So it was a different way into working closely with an actor. On Girl on a Train, I had a very close relationship with Emily Blunt. And then Aaron Sorkin, who's an incredible screenwriter. You know, again, that was another thing of understanding the rhythm of the script. So I've been very lucky to sort of been on this journey where I've met people who has brought me in and, and it's been incredibly educational, really. So the big question that I always have for people who direct NDP, and I, I really don't, I don't think we've had any of them in, like uh, we've always talked about maybe getting Steven Soderbergh or Peter Hyams or people who, who, who do both, but how do you bifurcate your brain to be able to pay simultaneous attention to composition and lighting your, and camera movement, which is your job as a DP, and performance, which is your job as a director. And obviously directors are always paying attention to everything, but knowing that you didn't, like you were the DP. So, you know, ordinarily, if you and the director were both sitting in Video Village and you caught like a weird highlight or something, you're not watching the actor. So how, how do you parse that out in your brain? How, how did that work for you? I, I think for me, it's always been one anyway. And I, I guess mm. that's what people have picked up on. And it's the way I DP. Even before I ever thought about directing, it's just the way, it's just the way I look at visualizing a scene. So I always read the scene only focusing on performance, even as a DP. Like, what mm. is it? That's the questions I will ask the director. What is it? What, what's the heart of this story? What is she, you know, what, what is she feeling here? What is he feeling here? Why is she doing that? Wouldn't she do that? Like, I would even question if I was in that position, I think I would leave, you know, I, I would mm -hmm. always sort of discuss the scenes with the director before we talk about anything in terms of how to visualize it, because otherwise I don't understand where to put the camera. Yeah. You know, I can put the camera to make a beautiful postcard image, but, but that's not my, that's not what I'm interested in. So I think it's always been discussing those scenes from purely performance and what the director's vision is. What does he or she want from the performance? So it was the same. It was only that now I could also talk to the to the actors actually and spend that extra time, you know, preparing it and, and actually match the two. And I spoke to all the actors about it before we decided to that I was also going to shoot it and to hear how they felt about it. Because mm -hmm. it was important for me that they didn't feel like, oh my gosh, she's just going to DP, we're going to have no director. <laughs> um, but they were quite excited about it. And I also said, this has always been my dream that, that I can bring the actor and the camera closer. And I saw that as my job. So really there wasn't two people, there was one person. Mm. Me, you know, in terms of DPing and director. And my goal was capturing the performances as one. So not just getting the performances and then figuring out how you shoot it, but it was sometimes I would have the images in my head first while finding the scene, you know, in rehearsals or in pre-production when we rehearsed or on set. But I would already sort of know this is this is how the pace of the scene is going to go. 
So it, it sort of became one thing rather than, I didn't feel I had two hats on. And also because I, I was operating. So I was- uh, That I was, was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> so I was right there, you know, so I could step down from the, from, from the camera and or look up and would have eye contact. So I sort of, I felt really, really close in there with the actors. I wanted to ask if you were operating, but I also wanted to ask, like, did, uh, I mean, you know, ordinarily you would always have a gaffer and all that stuff. Did you find yourself leaning more on any of your support staff than you would if you had just only been cinematographer on this? Absolutely. I had the most incredible team, crew, and and also the cast. Everybody was up for it. Uh, but technically, my, my camera department my gaffer john higgins who just mm. came off 1917 Whoa. very experienced man yeah you know i was lucky to have the most incredible team who also wanted to take that responsibility you know so they they got that extra responsibility and i we spoke about it beforehand i said i'm gonna share it because that's what i'm gonna have to do but it's also what i sort of am, i'm fascinated with what does cinematography become if you can properly prep it and you take people in and you have to rely on on them in a different way because I am doing two things. And and also with my AC, Ashley Bond, um, just incredible support because they didn't get as many rehearsals as you would if I was just sitting by the camera and could show them yeah. while the director's talking. You know, I was out there talking and I was like, we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and they were, it was incredible. So yes, my entire team took more responsibility. What they're telling me is that they really enjoyed it. Uh, because they, you know, it was one step closer to making that movie and actually their visions came in there as well. Same with my first AD, Zoe, she, you know, amazing support in terms of how do we split the time? When am I doing what? So honestly, it was, a, it was an incredible collaboration. I don't know if you're already thinking about uh, the next directorial outing, um, but ha have you fallen in love with directing? Is it something that you want to do more of? And if so, do you want to collaborate with another DP or do you like fusing these two jobs together the way you did? Yeah, I would do it again. I had a really wonderful experience. But right now I'm about actually tomorrow we start shooting uh, my next movie. Uh, it was called All the Old Knives. So I'm back DPing, which I really enjoy. And I think, I hope I don't have to make that sort of like, now I do this because I, I love my job as a DP. I love collaborating with directors. So yes, I would direct again, but I would, I'm happily waiting for that script or that story that's, that's right for, for me. And meanwhile, keep educating myself as a filmmaker. That's amazing. Uh, do you have a few minutes to discuss uh, the banker in, in a yeah, quiet place? Yeah, don't worry. I think my, my husband's kindly just come in and said he's going to put the kids to bed. So don't worry. Okay, cool. <laughs> Go for it. I now understand that feeling. Uh, when uh, we interviewed you last, I didn't have a kid yet. And actually, I saw A Quiet Place. And my wife at the time was about eight months pregnant when, when we saw it. Oh, no. It. I know. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it was exciting. To, firstly, uh, you know, and, and anyone who listens to the podcast knows I'm kind of a genre obsessive. And, you know, I love horror movies. And I didn't know about The Quiet Place when we had spoken. But it's an amazing piece of, uh, of horror filmmaking, like really contained and, and beautiful. Beautiful. And you hadn't really, uh, to my knowledge, done like, I mean, it, it's a character piece, but it's kind of a straight up horror movie. It's 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 scary. What was it like kind of stepping into the genre world uh, like that? Really exciting. You're, you're totally right. I hadn't done a, a horror film or a, or a strong sort of genre piece before. I've done mainly, you know, I've done period pieces, 
so it was really interesting. And I, the, the way the project came about was through Emily Blunt, who I did um, Girl on a Train with, and she mm. was doing this movie with her husband, John Krasinski. So also not, not someone known for horror, mostly known for comedy at that point. Exactly. So it was new to all of us. Um, but so it was through Emily Blunt and, and that we were friends at the time and, and wanted to do this together. So it was really interesting. John Krasinski was mixing genres already when we spoke. You know, he was very sort of, look, look you know, in terms of the visuals, just you know study a bit of Spielberg this way of working your way in we looked a lot at Jaws um, because Mm. because that movie also has this whole you know that shark is present uh, in the village and you know it's the monster of the movie but you don't see it for a very long time yeah Um, and this had sort of a little bit of the same thing you know you sort of see a shadow in the beginning where it kills this boy but then you don't you just hear it but you don't physically see it to the end so it was really interesting to study genre movies and and horror movies or thriller horror movies Mm -hmm. to get into uh, a quiet place while also remaining that sort of the heart of the story being between John Krasinski's character and and his daughter his deaf daughter who all she wanted was him to trust her to but obviously he couldn't because she couldn't hear and this sort of father-daughter relationship and some misunderstandings and in this bigger thing of you know the world is being taken over by by these creatures yeah so there was something to protect in that in the genre piece and it, i think the the combination of those you know very fragile portrait of a family and then you know in this horror world with monsters um, who reacts to sound was it was really it was fascinating fascinating and uh, again not not coming from a horror world like what were the horror movies that that inspired you the most you, you mentioned Jaws but were there other horror movies that you watched when you were kind of preparing for that that kind of struck you with the way that they they used the camera or they used whatever they used I actually I, I looked at lots and lots of horror movies just to understand the way they use the lens, you know, and, it, mm. it, and it's interesting because you can really find a, find a pattern. There is a sort of wide angle, low angle track that just seems to come in everything, whether it's the house from the outside, it's just like yeah. 14 mil. Um, so I, I watched all the, the classics, The Exorcist and, and all, you know, the older sort of horror movies. And just as a, understanding the, the visual language. Um, and I think what we took out from that was this, the slower you move, the more suspense, the more creepy it actually gets because you everybody's instinct is to run or to, you know, to, to sort of hide or whatever it is, if something's scary. But, you know, this poor lady, you know, that scene, I can't believe your wife watched it when she was eight months pregnant because that oh, she birth, was, birth she, she was fine <laughs> she loves horror movies just as much as i do so okay but i think this this thing that she couldn't get away you know so and it was all slow moves while she's in that bathtub about to give birth what a great sequence what an amazing sequence that is it is so suspenseful yeah yeah i don't i think when we did it we almost felt like oh man did we just make a moment in cinema here when she's like that top shot when she's there ripping the sides but i think all the horror films that i studied and uh, you know and also with jaws that thing of of sneaking or creeping or coming up over something or passing because in that scene where she's in a bathtub we also pass the actual hose thing you know mm-hmm. where you think like that's just in the way but actually just this thing that you go away for something for a moment it's so it, it builds suspense so it was it was a really wonderful study I, I really enjoyed it that's awesome and uh, uh let's also talk about uh the banker which unfortunately i haven't seen but Ilya has so Ilya can ask you a couple questions about it 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump in here. It's a period piece. It's a wonderful movie. It's got a great look, and I think you did a you you brought a lot to the to the table of this movie. Can you talk a little bit about the production? It was a relatively low budget production, and it was supposed to be Apple's big first foray into like a theatrical released movie, and that and that didn't happen. And and uh, certainly that's probably too much to unpack all of that here in this interview. But tell me about your experience with that. I loved making that movie. Um, yes, it was a I mean, low budget. It was a $10, $12 million movie, but with a big cast and, and huge ambitions and period piece, um, shooting 35. And so we, we sort of went all in to do the right things for this story. And it, and it was indeed a very important film for, for our director, George Nolfi, to tell. It's the true story. And it's one of those that you don't actually need to add a lot to make it dramatic it just in itself was a really incredible story of these two african-americans you know to buy a, a bank in texas so i think what I, what was really special about this one was that and and what uh, it, it was again it was a very educational experience with with george nolfi because he kept telling and telling me about and teaching me about spaces and because this film is so much about, you know, rooms and also m- money, obviously, you know, the way they sort of built their wealth through by starting with small properties and selling, making them up and then selling them again. So we had to sort of portray wealth and money in sort of journey with the with these houses and and properties that they bought. So there was a, that whole thing was it was all about how do we portray those spaces so there's a lot about sort of wanting to see the ceiling, which is difficult when you shoot anamorphic to get the height of things. But also George taught me about, you know, these things of, of putting pressure on people. So for, for instance, in the court case, you know, the way they sort of, they front light people, make them super sort of feeling so exposed and so sweaty and that they will project, you know, the truth in the end. So there was a lot of sort of psychology in, in all these things that we try to get into the cinematography. Tell me about, from your perspective, what it was about the banker's story that you felt it was most important. I, I understand spaces and money and, and wealth, but in the process of crafting the, the whole design and uh, of the shoot, there's a wonderful sort of theme of uh, social justice and trying to right wrongs through this incredible true story. But is there was there a particular theme that you wanted to to pull out from the story or there was something that you were really hoping to uh to communicate through uh through your work no i think it was actually very mutual with with our directors and that we both um and and with our producer joel who also cut it that there is i mean obviously there is a very sort of encouraging story in this is like go for it you know there's there it's a positive thing in all the negative stuff that was going on at the time with African-Americans and, and the way they were separated from, the, you know, the rich areas and all that. Um, so in this sort of typical story of, of how suppressed they, they were at the time, there's also a very sort of uplifting power story in this, you know, that they just bloody went for it and they mm-hmm. didn't actually do anything wrong, you know? So I think there's just, it's, it's encouraging. And I also like the way that there's bits of humor in there, the way they sort of teach this young white bloke to play golf because he needs to learn how to sort of, you know, behave in rich people's presence and all that. And and there's sort of, it's riding this fine line of sort of being quite funny in a very 
truly terrible story. <laughs> they had to <laughs> they had to hire a, a white man to actually get to do what they were really good at. You know, and the way George presented it to me, he, oh, he said to me one day, he's like, what if Einstein was black? I mean, would he have been Einstein? With his talent and everything that he could, would he have just drowned in that whole racism? Whereas, you know, this guy was a genius. He was a genius. And then, you know, he had to fight for it. But um, anyway, I, I think... I loved that story personally. I loved that thing that they put some humor into it and actually saw it from another perspective while also telling a story of injustice. It's wonderful performances from Anthony Mackie and Sam Jackson, of course, who are going to get the the headlines and they're, they're, they're you know, co-leading uh, men in this. But uh, Nicholas Holt, who, uh, of course, was in The Great, is also fantastic as a support player. They, there's a it's a really great cast. And, you know, it, it's a fun movie that that delves into the uh, the dark recent history uh, that that certainly has uh, tentacles that expand into today. So I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful movie. And my hope is that people will see this movie and uh it's on apple tv right it's on apple tv now and it's on it, apple tv people should really watch it because it, it has had a really unlucky run because um there were some issues when they when it was about to come out yeah, hours before the premiere actually just right before, hours like, before the premiere. oh no yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it, and and you know we'll, we'll, we can talk about it in the in the host wraps of this you know to kind of give people the you know the overview and we'll put a link in the notes too if someone if people want to read about it but uh, I think the movie is is certainly worthy and uh, definitely deserve it of attention and uh, I hope that we can uh, we can uh, do our part to try to push it out there in the world because it would a, it's be a, lovely because yeah. also when it then came out for when they won that whole court case end of in, in March it was a week before the COVID lockdown yeah so. Yeah. I had two premieres that just was hit by other things in life, you know, and and so it just it, it's um it was a shame. We, I absolutely lo- love the movie. I know George and Joel does too, and yeah, go see it. It would yeah, make absolutely. everybody happy. Yeah, t- 2020 was like the year that that conspired against it too. But I'm I'm glad that it, it is it's come out now. Everyone with Apple TV Plus or who bought an iPad because uh, you know that that actually ends up being part of the story too. Is that you know that it's, it's this large consumer electronics company and their first outing having uh, all of all of the controversy happen with the movie. But uh, certainly a worthy worthy movie. And uh, thank you very much for for speaking to us about it. It was it was really great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Cool. Uh, real quick, if you could remind us, is there any place people can see your work online or uh, do, if you have Instagram or Twitter, anything you want to plug about where people can find you? Oh, you know what? I'm so, ter- it's embarrassing. I'm terrible on Instagram. I am on Instagram. I'm just, I, I'm going to try and be better. If, if you guys <laughs> log in on Instagram, I'm going to try and be better. <laughs> but that's, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming back. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we got to talk to you. I, I look forward to seeing where your career goes. If you continue to shoot, if you continue to shoot direct, if you just direct, whatever you do, uh, can't wait to see what you do next. So thank you so much for coming on. We'll speak again, I hope. So uh, that was Shalotta Bruce Christensen. Always amazing to have her on the show. I, I just love her insight into her work. It's it's She's very articulate about her use of technique. And I think it's, uh, f- for me anyway, it's it, it's very revealing, but it also makes me think about technique in a, in a different way. So it's always good to hear from her and uh, her, her work uh, speaks for itself. So definitely go to Hulu and check out Black Narcissus if you have the Hulu. And if not, 
uh, get Hulu. It's pretty awesome. And you know, actually, I uh, you know, in in preparation, not because we I figured we'd talk about it, but I started rewatching Molly's Game last night. It's on, available on Netflix right now. If you've got Netflix, you can watch Molly's Game, which is also great. I think Molly's Game was a lot of fun, and if you recall, I incorrectly called it as an Oscar contender uh, that year. So it was an Oscar contender. I and, mean, uh, it, it, but it wasn't no, it wasn't nominated uh, for cinematography, and I thought Shalada's cinematography was pretty amazing. No, that that, that was an unfortunate snub, but uh, Jessica Chastain, you know, uh, fantastic. There was there, the movie got some Oscar, you know, it definitely did. And also, yeah. you know, that that year we, we did get to interview uh, Rachel Morrison, who was also nominated. So. That, that's true. Uh, okay. So, hey, uh, Ben, we got to read a little fan mail. Oh, fan mail. I like yeah. it because it, it makes me feel good about myself. Well, you, you know, you, you should feel good about yourself because, you know, uh, someone pointed out to me the other day that like, oh, yeah, they, they hear us talking and we don't do a lot of fanfare or anything or brag about our, our, our numbers and such. But but really, you and I, uh, we, we have our mild mannered lives. And then, you know, once a week, 30,000 people listen to everything we say. So, so. Yeah, I have you in my hands, 30,000 people <laughs> do my bidding. Uh, anyway, hey, here's a piece of fan mail from Robert Cunningham, who he mentions me because he, he's met me a couple of times and uh, and I remember him uh, completely. But he's he's very humble and acts like I, I, mm-hmm. I probably don't remember him. So he felt the need to point it out. He wrote he writes here, Ben, Ilya and all those who make it possible. I just want to take a moment to say thank you for this podcast and all you do. I met you, Ilya, at NAB one year when you had a set of Leica M lenses that you let me play with them for a bit. We also sat at the same table at the ASC Awards a time or two. I remember very well he brought his daughter with him, which is not a usual thing for a black tie affair, and she was lovely. Uh, Anyway, as a young and totally new filmmaker, I find such a wealth of information in your podcast that helps me understand the process. But it also helps me fight those inner demons of imposter syndrome and worries that I'll never make it and that you're wasting your life. You are going to go broke. Quit now and work at the Waffle House already. Oh, wait. I thought that that was me saying that to myself. Go on. (laughs) As the father of two wonderful daughters under the age of three, I get a bit in my own head at times and your podcast grounds me and reminds me that it will be okay. Just stay the course and in the end, it will be all right. As I have to listen to your podcast early before the gals get up or late when they are asleep, you often are the start or end of my day, setting the tone for things. That scares me a little bit. I know. T- <laughs> Can we put some like backwards mask satanic messages into this one? Especially since like we seem to be talking about the Me Too movement more often than not or and like, yes, in the pandemic. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a gloomy year with the pandemic, but yeah, I mean, you know. You're going to hear about it everywhere, so who cares? Uh, He concludes here by saying, and I truly appreciate all you've done to get this podcast to us. Thank you so much. And he includes a a photo of he, his daughter, and Werner Herzog at the ASC Awards, which I think is is wonderful. That took a turn. (laughs) He writes, her younger sister is only three months old, so she hasn't yet been able to melt the hearts of many yet. So anyway, I'm... uh, uh, I was I was very pleased to to hear from from Robert, and it's wonderful to hear from you, Robert. If you're listening to this, and thank you so much for the, for the uh, the email. Uh, it, thank I, you for I listening. Hope, and, yeah. and by the way, it should be said, and we say it a lot. Alana Cody is the one who's making sure that you have a new one of these in your ears every week. Because when it was just up to Ilya and me, it was like we had a new one every like three months. So. Uh, yeah, if if it was up to us, it it would probably be back on the old schedule. Something like uh, you know. When we feel like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the old schedule sucked. And we're, and we're on, like, it's been two years and we've had a new episode out every week for about the last two years, haven't we? No, yeah. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, you know, we're on 
if we continue like what we're doing and the growth rate uh, this year, or this year we'll we'll hit a million downloads, which is which is awesome. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Most importantly for me, though, I feel like and, I, and we've had some pretty high profile people on all along. But uh, and maybe it's because of the pandemic. It enables people who who ordinarily would be like, no, I'm not coming to your office or no, I'm not on your continent, for instance, yeah, to yeah. Uh, to to blow us off. But, but we've gotten recently some people who were sort of bucket list people for us to get on the show. And and so, you know, we're excited. I mean, like I, I, I can say that within the last two weeks, I have been like nerdily geekly, like the night before excited that the next day I was going to get to talk to the person that I got to interview. Yeah. It, what's really nice too, is when you, you talk to one of those people and you find out that like one of their friends had also done the show maybe years earlier and like, Oh yeah, yeah. So-and-so did it. And oh yeah, now, now I, have to do it too because you did yeah. it with them and now there's like some rivalry they have to you know one up each other or something anyway yeah they should all one up each other <laughs> they should all one up each other by by coming to us yeah uh, uh someone actually told us that they did this other cinematography podcast like this basically in not so many words that they much preferred doing ours which was which was which was really nice to hear it's so. not a race i'm okay with there being multiple cinematography podcasts i, I recently uh subscribed to candela which was re- recommended to me by george foyt checked it out i think mm-hmm. it's a really great podcast there's, there's lots of great podcasts. It's not really a competition, but I love the, it's not a, so much of a professional insult as it is a professional compliment yeah. when someone's out there making the rounds, going to a bunch of podcasts, but they go like, Ooh, I really like doing yours. And that, 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 that makes me feel good. That makes me feel like even in the sort of like small insulatory world of uh, cinematography, production related podcasts that uh, the people who are coming on the show say that they like doing our show and they like answering our questions and like working with us. So it's like, yeah, I, you know, I, I like helping people just as like a general thing. That's kind of like the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. That That's wonderful. And I love that people listen to the show and send us fan letters and they, they have a great time. But I also love it when the guests tell me that this isn't work, that this is something that they like yeah. doing. That that's, that's huge. I, I really no, no, that. I agree. I agree. And it's, 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 it's great to get to know these people. And you know, I've, I've probably mentioned it on the podcast several times, but one of the reasons I've always wanted to do this since I, pitched you the idea in whatever 2006 100% the show is your idea I'm I'm (laughs) taking zero credit for that (laughs) but um no but one of the reasons I wanted to do it is that to me like what great cinematographers do is black magic like I understand how to point a camera at something and set an f-stop and get an exposure and you know the basics but when you see somebody whose work is like truly inspiring and so many of the people we've had on are are this way I'm going to disagree. I think it's all just happy accidents. The whole thing. It's just like, there's, there's no work. There's no team. There's no effort. Yeah, like, it's just, no. It, it, but to me, it's, it's, uh, it's something that I've always, I always love reading American cinematographer and hearing people unpack how they did it. And to me also kind of getting into the conversation and kind of getting to know them and hopefully to our listeners, them getting a sense of what these people are like. And you know, if, if it, if it doesn't come across enough it's like they're from all walks of life they're all ages and genders and everything's you know they're they're a very diverse group of people they bring an interesting point of view to their work they're not just executing someone's idea they're they're a creative force that makes the idea happen and uh i i always feel like if you made a movie you could change out almost any personnel on a movie besides the director the dp and the lead actor or the lead few actors and it would probably be basically the same movie but the dp to me is as essential 
as the director or the lead actors or the writer. And when you get to talk to someone who really is the author of the images that they create and, and the people that we talk to, pretty much 100% of them are that. It's fascinating to unpack how they got to that point in their career, but also how they do, how they approach each individual job. So that's that's always what we're digging for. Um, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that it's also fascinating to somebody else because <laughs> I'm just making the podcast that I would want to hear. So, well, well I, I think we should, we should stop our self congratulatory congratulations. Not, here. I, 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 I mean, if anything, it makes me want to work harder to, to earn, you know, uh, his listenership. So honestly, it's, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to do what we do and talk to people who, Agreed. who, who do this work. You know, to me, this, this work is, you know, just amazing work that you know will live on and hopefully this podcast will be a good supplement to people for uh for, for some of some of the amazing work that we're talking to the people who made you know yeah i have those same hopes as well and now short ends so ben what's your uh, what's your short end this week so my short end actually relates directly to what I was just talking about. As a cinematographer that I was giddy excited to talk to, and we just interviewed uh, a few days ago. I don't know when the episode will drop, but we got to Soon. talk to the legendary, the amazing Anthony Dodd Mantle. Never heard of him. No, I can't. <laughs> of course. I was very, very pleased to be in that interview as well. That, that yeah, was a great one. Exactly. So uh, Oscar winner for Slumdog Millionaire, but also like one of the main DPs of the Dogma 95 movement has worked with, you know, legendary directors like Lars von Trier and Thomas Vinterberg and Ron Howard and, you know, on and on and on, uh, uh, digital pioneer. And so his newest project, which is why we were interviewing him, is he shot the HBO series, uh, the six-part series, The Undoing, starring uh, Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. And uh, I think the finale is tonight, actually. I uh, believe as we're recording it, the finale is tonight. And I had not seen it yet because I don't, like it's hard for me to be like, okay, I'm going to watch the six part thing. And a lot of times it's like, okay, well, let me watch the first part so I can at least get a sense of what it is and have an intelligent conversation about what it is. But this show is friggin' amazing. And I don't know if I hadn't paid attention to the trailers or I didn't really know what it was about. And you don't need to know what it's about to go in. Uh, but if you have HBO, definitely check it out. And one of the things that actually surprised me, because again, I'm watching it with cinematography in mind, is when I think of Anthony Dodd Mantle's work, like, you know, he does some cutting edge stuff and it's usually like really uh, edgy. I, and I use that in, in the interview and I think it's a hacky thing to re- refer to something as edgy, but like his stuff kind of has an edge to it. And when I started watching it, it's like all these rich people in the Upper West Side of New York. And it's like soft lighting and beautiful and bloomy. And I'm like, what is going on from a cinematography point of view? I mean, like from a story point of view, it it looks beautiful. Everything flows well. And then it gets to a certain point in the first episode where I'm like, oh, I get I get the Anthony Dodd mantle of this. And (laughs) uh, and and it really did kind of. uh, introduce itself in an interesting way but it's it's just a really compelling story i mean in essence it's a whodunit but it finds its way there in a really interesting way and uh anyway i I just think that uh if you're listening to the show you might want to check it out because the anthony dodd mantle interview will be dropping fairly soon but uh i just i just think it's a great show and i'm i'm hooked and probably when we get done recording this i'm gonna go watch the season finale Nice. I'm still yet to see it, but it has been on in my house. And so, uh, yeah, my, my wife was watching it and I know she was into it. Uh, I'm going to give it a shot when I, when I get a chance. It's, it's just a, a, a good, I mean, it, what's, what's fun about it sort of is that it is kind of a good old fashioned whodunit, but done in a very modern way. And, 
Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, I have not seen in roles exactly like this before. And they're both really, they're just, they're just great. So Ilya, what is your short end this week? You know, I was kind of thinking about actually making uh, a theme because by the time anyone hears this, it'll be December. And I'm thinking maybe, and this is going to be a bad pun, but, uh, Lensber, maybe Delensber. It's gonna everything is gonna be lenses in December. Oh my so, god! Oh my short side, that's terrible. Delensber, uh, we need to we need to workshop this uh, yeah. Delensber thing. <laughs> well, is there another month that that would make more sense? I I, I don't know, but we're in we're in December now, and I kind of want to do a bunch of uh, a bunch of lens things because there's a bunch of new lenses that have come out. There's a bunch of new lenses that are coming out, and there's even one lens that I had mentioned before, but is now out, and it's yeah, it's there's an embarrass. I mean, it used to be if you wanted a four to one zoom lens. If you wanted a four to one zoom lens for super 35, there, there was pretty much no options under $10,000. There just mm-hmm. wasn't. And as a matter of fact, $10,000 was, was really sort of like the bottom of the barrel. Now there, now there's several, uh, including one that kind of blows the price of long zoom lenses uh, away, which is a $5,000 lens. It's made in China from a, a, a very clever company called Lawa or Venus lenses. And they make this lens they call the OOM, O-O-O-M. It's a zoom lens. And the O-O-O-O, sorry, the O-O-O-M stands for out of our minds. And sure enough, <laughs> they made this this lens that is uh, really, really high quality. And it's five grand. It's $5,000. And it's really good. It's parfocal, meaning you can zoom in, focus, and then zoom out, and it's going to stay exactly at that spot. And uh, anywhere you zoom, the focus a pox is not on shift. the house of any lens maker that doesn't make a lens that does that. <laughs> There's quite a few lenses that don't I, do that. I know, and I have, really I have, loved. I have, I have royally fucked up focus uh, more than once because I was like, oh, the old zoom in, focus, and zoom out trick, which you know works on, you know, any very baseline camcorder. <laughs> Uh, here's the thing. I keep trying to take exception with this lens. I keep trying to say like, oh, well, it doesn't look very good in this regard or, oh, it's not going to be this. But the more I test it, the more I shoot with it, the more I'm playing around with it. It's just solid. It's just mm-hmm. absolutely solid. And it totally compares to lenses that are a lot more expensive. And at five grand, is it does it have every sort of bell and whistle? Of course not. But damn, you know, for a lot of people out there who tell me they just want to have a professional camera and one lens and not be switching lenses all the time. It's a 25 to 100. And if you're actually willing to pay an extra 1500 bucks, they're going to give you this really cool kit that gives you a anamorphic rear adapter and a doubler. So now all of a sudden your lens uh, loses a stop of light, but is way, way longer. And it's just, this incredible lightweight, small, relatively lightweight, small package for very little money. Uh, the Lawa Oom lens, of course, you can get it at Hot Rod or wherever you buy your stuff, but it's... But really get it at Hot Rod. If you're listening to this podcast and you're going to buy it anyway, for you, God's yeah, sakes. Definitely. At least, you know, or arrange for a demo. We have a demo. We'll, we'll, we lend people this lens to to, ask, to test out. There's things that we can do that way. Hey, I've it's got a really name for good. you. Glassmas. Yeah. How's that? Glassmas. <laughs> it's better than okay. D-Lensmer. D-Lensmer. Okay, fine. Glassmas. It's the... Uh, <laughs> The Mary Glassmas. Mary Glassmas, everybody. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to steal that. I'm, right now, officially, I'm going to steal that. It's going to be uh, Mary Glassmas here on my short ends, and it's going to be a different lens uh, we're going to talk about. And most people don't know, uh, I've been involved in the optical development of cinema lenses since 2006, and so... Uh, I've been involved with a lot of different companies and their their lenses coming out, and uh, this was not one of them. I didn't really have anything to do with this lens except for being an early tester, and it's really good. It's a really good lens. 
I, I wish I was at your showroom. Like ordinarily when we record these, we record them at your showroom and you could be like, hey, I'm going to show you this cool lens. And I'd go down and be like, cool. Not that I have five grand to drop on a lens, but it'd be <laughs> like, cool. Good to know that this is a thing. But uh, probably have to wait till, uh, you know, after we all get vaccinated in two weeks to six months. <laughs> yes, sure. Uh, and at that point, uh, you'll be welcome to come in and, and play with some lenses. Uh, Can't in the mean- wait. In the meantime, if you were to show up at our shop, though, it's ridiculously COVID like safety compliant. We are uh, we have we we have a private shopping experience for people. If someone wants to make an, an appointment, we can set them up in a private space that no one else enters. And it's just them. So just you and a lens, just you and a lens and a chart and a couple of lights. Have a nice day. So, <laughs> and then we also we can really severely control our space and we're not like a little uh, closet we got 30 foot high ceilings so even though you when you are indoors you really don't feel like you are you know uh, breathing somebody else's air we've got sneeze guards everywhere and the yellow black striped lines on the floor and sanitization nice. and free masks and all that jazz so and plus we we sell all the n95 stuff too so for the people who want to leave with extra n95 masks or genuine 3m n95 masks we finally got our shipment of those so uh, yeah we're trying to be really really uh really really on the ball about these things excellent what does the n in n95 stand for I think it stands for no idea. No, I actually don't know what it stands <laughs> for. So, uh, I, I know it is a, a, a designated uh, standard though. It's a designated standard for, you know, removing like 95% plus of all particles in the air. I'm sure someone listening to this will tweet at me what it, what it says followed with comma dumbass, And I earned that. <laughs> I didn't know either. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, cool. All right. So, so Ben, let's thank some people. Let's uh, first thank Alana Cody, who uh, who made this possible and who uh, worked really hard to bring Shalata back onto the show. It was great to talk to her again. Let's uh, let's thank Ben Katz, the intrepid editor, who's been putting this all together very fast. And uh, lastly, let us thank Kay's Alatraxi, who created every piece of music you've heard on this. And there is some percentage chance that he's listening to this episode. Probably low. Yeah, between one and zero. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, uh, Ben, where can people find you? Should they want to reach out? Uh, go to benrockonline.com. Check out my new reel, my new directing reel, uh, edited by my friend David Haverty. You can find all my social media links and everything there. Say hi. Uh, I, I have yet to not accept a connection on LinkedIn or a friend from Facebook who uh, who is clearly from the podcast. Uh, last week, someone came into Hot Rod Cameras uh, demanding a shirt from the podcast, and they really? got two. Yeah. Were they, yeah. were they super rude about it? Cause they, 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 I, I they want them to be, I want them to come I, in and, and demand it. Like they it's, it's their birthright <laughs> entitlement. <have> yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, they, d- they demanded, they were like, Oh, Hey, you know, I, I wasn't there, but I've heard, they were like, I heard if you mentioned the podcast, there's a shirt and they were like, all right, here you go. And they, they hooked them up. Sweet. So go to hot rod cameras, get an N95 mask, find out what N in N95 stands for and demand your shirt, demand it rudely. <laughs> Don't demand it. Really. I, I'm not going to be there, so it doesn't matter. Uh, I, I will refuse service to the to the rude people. <laughs> Don't be rude. We Don't we have rude. all these signs that's like you must acknowledge all of these things before entering these premises. But you know, rudeness nice. actually was was not there. We'll we'll have to add that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you have symptoms of COVID, if you have a cough, if you are n- n- one of these anti-maskers, then th- there's basically no way you can enter the store. But uh, but as long as someone like agrees to all this stuff, then yeah, yeah, they they can they can come in, and we stay far away from them. And yeah, they're we, we good. Sure, yeah, they can get their shirt. Excellent. <laughs> well, cool, Elliot. Well, uh, that about wraps it up, and uh, we will see you, fair listeners, next week. 
with a new episode. I don't know which one it will be yet because we have so many ready to go. Can't wait for you to hear it. It will be a good one. They've been really good lately. They're only getting better. Oh, boy. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.